Welcome to Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a podcast featuring Alberta Chartered Professional Accountants asking and answering questions related to business, leadership, finance, and more. I'm Laura Lee with CPA Alberta, and I'll be your host for today's show. My guest today is CPA and paracyclist Ross Wilson, and we're going to be discussing innovative ideas, competitive cycling, Ross's accounting career, and more. 150,000 new businesses are created in Canada each year, but only 51% of you is a critical skill for leaders. Artificial intelligence will take over analytics, big data, trend analysis. I'm hearing that Alberta needs to diversify its economy, but how do we do that? Create new opportunities for young innovators. This account for 77% of all private jobs created in Canada. Filter out the noise. Hear it straight from the CPA's mouth. So, Ross, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Straight from the CPA's Mouth. Um, we're really excited to have you on the show. Do you want to maybe introduce yourself and say a couple a couple words about yourself? Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to answering some of these questions. My name's obviously Ross Wilson. I'm uh, I'm an Edmonton-born and bred individual. I've... Uh, I have the distinct pleasure of saying I've lived in two houses my entire life. Uh, my entire career and education has been spent in Edmonton with uh, a little bit of a sp- uh, stint out in Queens, uh, in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, I work for Nate as their director of internal audit. Uh, I have a couple of fun little hobbies on the side that keep me busy and let me travel the world and see different parts of it. And so, yeah, I'm happy to share some of my history. Okay. Well, we will get into your fun hobbies very <laughs> shortly, um, but we're going to kick this off. So in the previous podcast, we featured Brian Heshi as our guest, and he posed the following question for us to discuss and answer in today's podcast. What is the most innovative idea to date? So Ross, what do you think is the most innovative idea to date? I mean, I think when you talk about innovation, that's such a broad topic, um, whether we're talking about products or whether we're talking about ideas or we're talking about thought concepts. What, what really gets me excited uh, when I think of innovative ideas is really changing p- public perception or changing public ways of thinking. Um, so obviously, uh, I have to full disclosure, I mean, connected to my own heart is this matter. But uh, when I think of the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics and just how they're going about their campaign to raise awareness and to promote the Paralympic Games itself, I think that that's incredibly innovative. So one of the things that they've done with it right from the start is they've had the governor of Tokyo come out and publicly declare that that Tokyo itself as a municipality views the Paralympics as being more important to their economic and future sustainability um, than the Olympic Games. And they see the successful hosting of the Paralympic Games as being really indicative of their ability to move forward. And what they're saying is that... Uh, their, their population right now, it's made up of baby boomers who are frankly aging, as we all do. Um, and as we get older, uh, physical disabilities become a more prevalent issue to deal with. So by hosting these Paralympic Games, they're able to test run just a million different ideas and a million different concepts and strategies to actually understand what sort of changes need to be made to their, their city and their, their way of living so that they can adapt to their new population needs. And so they're changing that kind of public perception about what it means to have a disability. And no longer is that you have a disability and you're the one-off, but you're now the majority and everybody has this. And this is just about changing how society functions. Uh, other things that they're doing, which I think is just awesome, is even in their educational system, school children who are going to, to school in the four years leading up to the 2020 Games are going to receive an equal number of hours of education around all Olympic sports as well as all Paralympic sports. 
And no longer will it be kind of, here's the Olympic sports for two hours and then 20 minutes on, oh, by the way, there's also Paralympic Games. It's an equal distribution. So it'll be two hours on every single Paralympic sport and two hours on every single Olympic sport every single week. And so just the public awareness and the public understanding of what the Paralympic Games talks about and what it involves is just, it's going to be in an astronomical level. And just think that that forward thinkingness of the uh, of the Tokyo 2020 Organization Committee to understand the real value proposition that's posed by hosting these events is just incredibly insightful. And to me, that's like, it's changing how people think, how people view the world, and how people interact with the world. That's, that's innovation to me, so. Wow, that's a great answer. Um, so you talked about, you know, changing public perception. So prior to Tokyo, you know, doing, implementing all these different um, ideas, what is kind of in general the public perception of, you know, the Paralympics? Yeah. <laughs> How is that different from what it is that they're they're doing? I mean, I think the funniest uh, funniest example is even my own mother. She she likes to tell all her friends that I went to the Special Olympics. Oh no! <laughs> uh, and it's just the Paralympics themselves is for individuals with a physical disability. Special Olympics is for individuals with a cognitive disability. Mm-hmm. There is no kind of awareness or understanding necessarily what that means. There's also this kind of view that the Paralympics is a um, participation based uh, activity, and it's if you have a disability, you can go to the Paralympics. Well. It's actually a high-performance sports environment, and to get there, you have to actually be performing at a very high level and uh, really be the best in your class for your country. So, Say we lived in a world where there was no challenge to public perception. What? what oh, that'd be what, so boring. Yeah. What would the world look like without <laughs> that? Yeah. I mean, if there was no challenge to public perception, I don't think there'd be any disagreement or any conflict. And mm-hmm. so if everybody could understand everything the way everybody else does, then, I mean, there's no difference of views. There's no, there's no interest. There's no intrigue, I guess. I mean, there's no back and forth. There'd be no kind of different views about how we allocate funding because there's no different perception of what the funding is being used for or the, the value that's being provided by the funding or anything. It's even right down to our electoral system. There'd be no difference in, in terms of uh, having a democracy versus a dictatorship. Um, if you had truly no no issues with public perception and influencing it, dictatorship would be fantastic because then everybody agrees with you, uh-huh. right? So. Yeah. Are there any other examples of, in recent history, where innovative ideas have changed public perception that, that come to mind? Well, I mean, there's, a, there's an ongoing uh, item right now in Edmonton, which I think is really cool. So at the Citadel Theater, they're hosting The Tempest, and The Tempest is being sponsored by, um, I can't remember, the. It's, I think it's the Alberta Association for the Deaf. And so oh. in this Tempest production, two of the lead, lead characters are actually deaf actresses. And so they don't speak throughout the production. They sign the entire production and another cast member speaks on their behalf while they're on stage. And then when those individuals like Lauren Cardinal, who's starring in it, are actually speaking and and using uh, uh, oral communication, another cast member is signing this using the American Sign Language Standard. And so to me, that's that's super cool because when you watch this production, this entire audience then looks at this and they don't see that, you know, it's this production that's being specifically put on for deaf people. It's just a normal production. And by the way, it's been made inclusive so that deaf people can participate and understand what's going on. And that changes that perception about like, what it means to actually host a, a production like that. And if, if you can do Shakespeare using sign language, I mean, it's hard to argue that you can't do any other production like that too, right? So I think that that's just small steps where we are changing the perception about that sort of a disability. Yeah. And that's just, as an audience member, is cool to see, yeah. right? What is the importance of innovative ideas? How would the world change if innovation just came to a standstill completely? I mean, I think that's a, a bit of a double question there because if, if you think about it, innovation is talking about change. How are we changing 
ways of doing things? How are we changing our approaches, et cetera? And so your, your question is, if change stopped, how would the world change? Oh, yes, that's right. So, I mean, innovation, I think, is just really, it's a, it's a nice adjective, but what we're talking about is, is fundamentally new ways or, or new approaches. It's about uh, just having new, new understandings. I mean, if, if there was no more, no more evolution, if we reached the zenith of, of what we could do with technology and what we could do with uh, our capacity to understand and to rationalize and have logic, I mean... That that's really when there would be no more change in the world, right? And I mean, I, I I can't even fathom what that would be like. So I would suggest that we've reached perfection. Um, I certainly don't believe we have. So <laughs> yeah, I I can't uh, I I don't have a good answer for you on that. I would just say that uh, change is is one of those things where it's inevitable. It's just going to be part of the world, whether you're a student going through the education system right now. Um, what you experience is going to be very different than what your your children experience or what their children's children experience just because of the the effect that individuals have on the world. Um, just by being here in this room, we've created a change, right? So, What about innovation and innovative ideas in the accounting profession? You're a CPA. Do you think of accounting as an innovative profession? You know, <laughs> it's kind of a, that's a, a tough question because when we think about the accounting profession and what it means to be a CPA, even just the scope of what sort of work we carry out has changed so much over the, the history of the profession. Even in my career, I mean, if, if we look back at it, it started off where uh, you went into the accounting profession and you did audit and you were involved with the financial reporting and the financial accounting aspects of the business. And now you're much more embedded within the IT aspects and understanding the ERP system. Uh, and so an accounting professional now needs to have knowledge that relates to the IT system. Uh, myself, I, I, I ended up going into internal audit, so that means the scope of my operations are everything that we do over at Nate. Um, so that includes everything from instructional delivery right through to facilities and maintenance. So just to say that accounting itself uh, covers uh, debits and credits and financial reporting is, is no longer actually accurate. It just the scope of, of the work that we carry out is is so broad that. It just forces the individuals to be nimble and adjust and adapt. I think that it's, a really, it's, it's an interesting profession in the sense that it gives you fundamental tools which you can then apply to multiple situations or any kind of scenario, and you can help to provide some sort of uh, expertise that helps to, to better that, that scenario through process design or process documentation, etc. Um, so I think that accounting itself just because of the fact that it is growing in scope and it's growing in terms of what the expertise involves it becomes a very innovative profession because it's it's requiring individuals to be nimble and adapt and to learn kind of continually throughout their career um and just in terms of how they deliver service to their to their clients or their whoever they're providing the service to, I mean, it becomes about targeting your audience and understanding what that audience actually needs. Uh, I mean, one of the big pushes over the the recent times have been uh, making a lot of the financial information more accessible and and making it easier for people to understand some of the jargon which we use. And that that to me is just that speaks to the the ability of us to adapt and change to what's required. So in your intro, you talked about some hobbies you've got. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the hobbies? Yeah. I, um, so I race bicycles, or as my friends like to tell me, I crash bicycles. Yeah. Uh, no, I race for, for, for Canada um, on the international paracycling scene. I was fortunate enough to be selected and go to, to Rio for the 2016 Paralympic Games, where I won Canada's first medal of the Games, uh, took a silver in a, a track cycling event called the Individual Pursuit, and then I took a second silver on the road in the individual time trial there. 
So I've had the really nice opportunity to travel to places like Italy and Spain, um, Brazil, obviously. I think in total, I've been to every continent except uh, except Oceania now. So wow. I just have one more to go and I can check them all out. Well, Antarctica, if you count as a continent. Yeah. There's not too many cycling races down there. So, Do you have a favorite place that you've been? My favorite, hands down, is Italy. I mean, that that country is just... Uh, I, so I, I will put the caveat in. I love to travel to Italy. I love to visit it. I think it's scenic. It just it inspires something about it. It's just I love the culture. I love the food. Uh, I love the coffee, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, the terrain is just beautiful. Um, the climate's nice. But I would never want to live there because no. there's just so many people and it's so busy, and especially if you go to a place like Rome or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um but I, yeah, it's 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 a nice one, um, and it's just nice to to actually experience these different cultures. Um, I have found that when we we do a lot of racing in Holland because bicycles are so big there, and when you talk about just kind of a welping, welcoming and receptive audience, they're just the, the Dutch people are just so friendly and so nice, and it's a it's a treat to be part of it there. Yeah, how did you get into cycling? Uh, so how did I get into cycling? So uh, I guess bit of a long story with that one. So in about uh, 2012 uh, to 2013 in that range, um, I wanted to see my doctor and he uh, he was doing my kind of my annual physical. I knew I had this condition called Charcot-Marie 2 syndrome, which is a neurodegenerative uh, condition of the peripheral nervous system. So that sounds like a lot of words and it's kind of complicated. The, the short form is that my peripheral nervous system is breaking down. So the long nerves that go down my arms and legs are slowly getting worse. And so the muscles that are in my arms and legs function less and less. So I went to see my doctor and at the time I weighed about 280 pounds and he said yeah, to boil it down, like either get your life in order or your life is going to get awfully hard. Um, he just said, you have this condition, being overweight and obese is going to aggravate it and make your life difficult. You'll probably get more injured and you just won't be able to participate in things. So you need to lose some weight. So over a year, about a year, I lost around 100, I think it was 140 pounds in total and went down to 160. And then I read all these articles and I understood that, you know, you balloon back up if you don't do something about this. So being a, a child of the 80s and having watched Lance Armstrong in the Tour de France and having been mentored and gone to school with Sandy Hilton as a prof, I knew all about cycling and I was very aware of it. Um, so I bought a bike just for, for some fun. Um, I started with planning to do the, the Ride to Conquer Cancer just as a, a fundraising sort of event. Um, and from there, I kind of, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'll try racing. It'll, it'll be something fun to do. And so I entered a local race in, that was in Canmore, and I just I had a blast. It was a lot of fun to go super fast, to have all these people around you. There's a lot of camaraderie involved with it. Um, and from there was a, a very good friend of mine. She, uh, she works with individuals with, uh, pardon me, children with autism and other disabilities. And she recognized some of my conditions from watching the 2012 Paralympics um, in London. And she recognized my kind of symptoms with another individual who was, who was racing by the name of Anthony Zahn from the United States. She said, hey, have you ever considered Paralympics and paracycling and maybe you could go somewhere with this and do something. So I thought about it for a little bit and finally I picked up the phone and I called Sebastian Travers, who is the national team head coach in 2014. And I said, hey, I'd like to be involved, which sounds very simple, but it's kind of funny. It's like, it was like uh, if Scotty Bowman was the coach of the Red Wings, you picked up the phone and you called Scotty Bowman and said, hey, I want to play hockey. (laughs) So it was a bit of a Weird move on my part, I guess, but uh, Sebastian, to to his credit, was very, very accommodating and nice, and he said, yeah, come out to nationals, and we'll see how it goes, and 
So I went to nationals in 2014, and um, based on my times and just the, the official classification system, they, they were able to seed me into my specific discipline. Um, and uh, based on how fast I could go, they, they, were, they were ecstatic. They're like, yep, you're competitive internationally, you're coming to Spain. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of a whirlwind from there. Yeah. yeah. Was there a moment for yourself where you thought, I can do this, I can be a contender? Yeah, uh, I think the the big breakthrough for me came in the spring of 2015. Um, so in the, sorry, I have to, again, long story always. In the fall of 2014, after some road results, the team had looked at my profile and just my build, uh, just as I am even being about around 180 pounds or so. Uh, I'm I'm big for a cyclist and I'm I'm fairly tall, but I'm strong, and so that really suits track cycling very well. And so they sent me a track bike and said, like, we want you to try track cycling and we think you'd be really good at it. And in the spring of 2015, in my first ever race, uh, well, pardon me, the spring of 2014, I got the dates wrong, um, first ever track cycling race, um, I, I ended up taking a silver medal at the world championships in the individual pursuit. And so to me, it was just like, this was this eye-opening moment where like, I paid my first ever time out and I can, I'm already the second best, like, geez, I could win something here. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun kind of experience, but I mean, for the most part, I try not to think about it. I just have fun and enjoy it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, you know, the Charcot-Marie-Tooth. It was kind of this a bit of a starting point that led you on this journey. Does it affect your cycling at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. So uh, the way the way that the symptoms manifest in me is I have weakness in my hips uh, and my thighs. And then below my knee, it's my legs are paralyzed, basically. Um, so I have no muscle tone in my calves or feet, et cetera. Within my hands, I have really, uh, really degenerated hand strength. And so gripping the handlebars and stuff like that becomes a challenge. Yeah. And then in my shoulders, in my um, traps in the back, I have uh, muscular wasting as well. And so for pulling on the handlebars, I have reduced ability. Yeah. And so there's a coordination aspect as well as a power generation aspect. Yeah. How do you overcome those challenges? Is it just, you know, training? You don't. I no. mean, it's just, <laughs> this is just your new reality kind yeah. of thing. And so you, you I mean, it's... You, it's you have whatever resources you have so i have uh, whatever muscles i have that i can recruit and yeah. so i try and build up those other muscles and i try and develop them as much as i can but it's like if you cut off an arm you can never use that arm again you don't overcome it you just adapt to it and so i think that the paralympics is really we talked about innovation earlier the paralympics is a great example of people who who recognize their limitations and they say, what are other ways or other means that I can change that allow me to still do an activity or to excel at an activity? But you never actually overcome something. I mean, just because, uh, like, for myself, I train and I build up other muscle groups, but that doesn't replace or supplement the muscles that aren't there. Like, it's, I compensate for, but it's, you don't overcome it, I guess, is, is how I view it. Um, so you mentioned earlier that your friends say that you like to crash bikes. Yeah. Um, so I understand that you had a, a fairly big crash and you, know, you had an incident in Switzerland. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What happened there and some of the crashes that you've experienced? Yeah, sure. I mean, even right now, I, eight days ago, I, I crashed and I broke a couple of ribs and so. Oh wow. Yeah. So I have this this history, but yeah, 2015 in Switzerland, it was um, the week before um, a World Cup event, and it was a key qualifying for the 2016 Paralympic Games. Um, and I was warming up on the, the time trial course and it's this beautiful setting down by a lake and you're in Switzerland, there's the Alps around you. It's just this wonderful area. And a family had been going for a picnic. They got in their little Toyota Yaris, so a little tiny hatchback car, and they backed out of this angled parking spot without looking. And I happened to be coasting along at about 30 kilometers an hour and I collided with the back of their car and went right through their rear window. 
I ended up breaking my uh, my collarbone on the right side, um, a couple of ribs, my scapula, and then I had a laceration that, well, the collarbone break itself, there was a laceration at my neck that went from the front of my neck to the back of my neck and exposed the collarbone, and then there's a deep laceration in my right forearm where my arm had hooked into the uh, the window itself, and I'd rolled along it, and oh, so, Lord. yeah, my... It, I was very fortunate because like two minutes behind me was my coach and the rest of my teammates. And so they were able to call the, uh, call the emergency authorities. And Switzerland has this really kind of cool medical approach where if there's a serious enough accident, they actually put a doctor into the ambulance. And so your doctor who treats you in the hospital is actually on the scene of the accident itself. And so I received a, a lot of attention there. Um, so that was in uh, May of 2015. Um, but if you recall, 2015 was also the year of the um, Toronto Pan Am Games. And so there was a corresponding para Pan Am Games the week after those games had completed. And I was supposed to go to those games. And I think it was in June of the year or something. It was roughly two months after this crash. And I decided, you know, I was going to go. Like, I was going to make full recovery. Uh, so I got checked over by the doctor and everything. And he told me, yeah, your, your collarbone's broken. It's not going to heal in time. Like your, your ribs are broken. They're not going to heal in time. But you know, you know, Ross, if, if you can deal with the pain, you, you could probably go ahead and race. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of course I went to Toronto and I, uh, I started the road race on the very first day and it was a 66 kilometer road race. And on kilometer 60, I went down a steep hill way too fast. And I plowed into a steel fence that was barricading the fans from me and, Everything that was kind of broken was rebroken, and then I added a couple of other breaks, caving in some of my cheekbone, and um, and I, again, I for some reason I always hurt my neck, but uh, I had this big puncture wound that went straight into my neck, and so it was funny. Every single time I've been in the hospital, the doctors always tell me like, "Yeah, one inch this way and you're dead. Yeah. One inch this way, you're dead." So I've been very fortunate, I guess. So you must be essentially walking scar tissue then. I mean, I, I like to think of myself more as like an X-Men or something, right? Because oh. there's plates and there's metal in me and yeah. I'm a mutant, right? So this is, <laughs> these are all good things. There you go. So while you were racing, you must have been in obviously quite a bit of pain. So what keeps you going when you're, if you're in pain and you're racing and what keeps you motivated to the finish line? Oh, well, desire to win. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of it, and like honestly, I credit a lot of this to to my to my articling training and, and everything, um, prepping for the, the final exam uh, from CASB when I went through it, uh, and the UFI itself, I mean, it was one of those situations where you learned and you developed the skills to just focus on an outcome and you just focus on the end in sight. Um, so whether that be an exam or a race, it's the same sort of skill sets and it's the same sort of studying and practice techniques and it's the same sort of dedication of leading up to something. And so it's more that you just you recognize that I have this goal and this objective and this is what I need to do and you do it. Yeah. So, I mean, I give a lot of credit to a lot of the discomfort that I experienced by going through the accounting articling process to, to become where I'm capable of doing. So, you probably don't recall this, but you and I had actually met a couple years ago at a Capitalize photo shoot. For those of you who are listening, Capitalize is our CB Alberta student recruitment magazine and Ross was our cover model. Best and, looking cover yeah, model around. So. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> and, and you brought your, your silver medals. And so I was at the photo shoot and had the the luck, you know, and the, the joy of actually being able to, the closest I'll, I will ever get to any medal of any kind, frankly. And uh, and what struck me was just how heavy they were. So when you, you know, you were at the podium, what was going through your head when it got draped around your neck? What did it mean for you to stand at the podium and win these medals? So with the, with the first medal in the pursuit, uh, I remember I came off... Uh, the, the race itself and I knew I'd lost and uh, 
And like the mature adult that I was, I broke down crying and my coach held me like a little baby (laughs) and we avoided all of the media scrum. We didn't talk to any reporters and I sat in the back and I cried and complained about how this was unfair that I lost. Um, And then 20 minutes later when I had to go for the podium service, I I remember standing up on the podium and, uh, and just the overwhelming sensation of envy frankly, really? of watching my opponent who had won the gold medal and just how much envy I had for, for him being on top. Yeah. Um, there, like there's something really special about having the national anthem played because you won. Like it's just a cool experience. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to win world championships and to have the Canadian national anthem played because of that. And it's just, you get this, such a, a rush of pride and it's just so so unique and it's not something that you can ever duplicate i mean you can try it standing at home and just put the national anthem on it's not the same (laughs) right but um and so i remember being on this podium and just having so much envy and so much like desire to 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 win next time and it was just so much drive that i that yeah i've carried that every day since then it's just that chance to get back to there and have that chance to win and to, to play the national anthem because you won. Yeah. Obviously, you've heard the national anthem, so you've won some gold medals. Um, what are some of the medals that you've won since? So since then, in 2017, I became a dual world champion on the track in two events. And then I've won a whole bunch of silver and bronze medals at um, different World Cups, um, as well as world championships on the road. I think my favorite favorite victory since then is racing against some of my some of my good friends. I was able to beat them in an individual time trial, and so I like to always give them a hard time and tell them my favorite thing about racing is beating fully able-bodied <laughs> people because you know they have no excuse. They should be faster than me. I start with I started a negative. They should be able to beat me always, right? So I just that's what I enjoy the most, I guess. Do you still have that feeling that if you don't win gold, that it's it's a loss from your perspective? Well, I mean, <laughs> we, you don't go to the games to to participate. I guess, like, mm-hmm. I I know every like the, the the politically correct answer is, oh, it's an honor to be part of it, and it is. It's it's wonderful to be part. I'm very proud to represent Canada, et cetera. But I want to win. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going there to win. I've dedicated every like a, an inordinate amount of time towards something. It's. Uh, when you, when you really put like that much effort and that much energy and that much commitment into something, it's because you really want to get that result. So it, it is a loss, but it's not it's not a loss in the sense that it wasn't worth it. It's a loss in the sense that I didn't get the ultimate result I wanted. But along the way, the process itself yielded so many ancillary benefits that it was more than worth doing kind of thing. Um, the other piece is if if it inspires one other kid out there who happens to have a disability to pursue cycling as well or to pursue a different parasport, that's a huge win. That's something else. Um, if I can help change some of the perceptions about what it means to be an athlete with a disability or to, to balance kind of like a full-time job as well as an athletic career and just what we can achieve, I mean, that also is a win. It's So yeah, there's a lot of ancillary things that go along with it, but did you lose? Well, it's a yes or no. Either you won or you lost, and I lost, right? So Obviously, you, you've named a couple of medals that you won. Where do you keep them all? How do you store all your medals? What do you do with them when you're done? Uh, that makes me sound really bad. I have a shoebox. Do you? Okay. I just put them in a shoebox. Yeah. Um, they sit in my basement. Uh, my world championships, so the way we're cycling, when you win a world championship, you get a, a rainbow jersey. So I framed that rainbow jersey and have the two gold medals that I won um, built into the frame of it. And that sits in my training room as a reminder of what you can, 
what I'm trying to duplicate in other events, right? Mm-hmm. But most of my other medals sit in a box. Um, my Paralympic medals, I keep them in um, these nice commemorative boxes that came from Rio, but then they sit inside another cardboard box on my shelf. Just because anytime I need to bring them somewhere, it's easier. And I didn't do it for the medal itself. I did it for the experience and kind of the that process. And so... I don't really need to look at the metal or touch the metal or anything. I know where it is, right? So, Can you talk me through your training regimen and how you train for, you know, a world championship? So it depends if I'm training for, for, for road events or for the track events. So track events are, are typically held over the winter or in the spring months, and then the road events are over the summer themselves. Um, so track events tend to be a lot shorter. Uh, so one of the races is one kilometer, so four laps. Another race is the, the pursuit, which is kind of my speciality, and it's 12 laps. And it's uh, because of the length of it, it's around four to five minutes. And well, for me, it's around four minutes. Um, because of that length, you can maintain a really high power output for the duration. And so the training be over the winter is really a combination of strength training in the gym. So things like squats, deadlifts, um, and another sort of explosive sort of movements, as well as training on a resistance trainer in my basement. So I spend a lot of time alone listening to music way too loud and, and training with this fan blowing in my face. <laughs> What I, what I like to do over the winter is um, usually I'll have a half an hour to an, one hour in the morning just to build up some of my uh, base endurance or my endurance sort of ability. Uh, then I'll go to work for, for eight or nine hours throughout the day, and then in the evening I'll do another hour to two. Um, if I have a strength training session, I try and slip it in either at lunch, right before work, or right after work, and then I fit in the other training as well. From about March, uh, March 1st or March 15th, depending on what the weather's doing, I actually just ride my bike to work and then... On my way home from work, I just extend that time. So instead of doing a 45-minute commute to work from Sherwood Park, I would then head out into the, the rural roads and maybe get in another hour or two. And uh, in the winter, we also travel to uh, to nicer locations like Hawaii because, you know, you, you definitely need to go there. So. Yeah. But no, it's it, just with being in those warmer locations, you can ride outside and you can put in longer miles to actually build endurance capabilities itself. Um, and then... Yeah, with the summer itself, I do as much racing as I can locally against anybody and everybody. I race with uh, Pedalhead Roadworks here in town as part of their their local team, and we do the provincial race circuits and have some fun there too. Obviously, you have a full-time job. You, you also mentor and volunteer with the profession. How do you balance all these roles and demands on your time? Yeah, you know, so many people ask that sort of a question, and I don't really look at it as a balancing. It's just this is my life. These are the things that I have to do. So if I get up if I get up on a Monday morning, I know I have to train for an hour, I have to work for eight hours, I have to, I don't know, do the dishes and, and groceries. Like These are just jobs that you need to do each day. And so I don't really look at it as a question of balancing. It's more just what do you have to do throughout the day and how do you fit it together? And so I try and be very meticulous about planning my routines and planning my schedule and being aware of fitting stuff in. Um, certainly with volunteering with the profession and trying to give back, I, I, I don't see that as being something that I'm fitting in. It's just that's an obligation I have. I mean, it's part of being a professional. It's like you try and give back, you try and encourage and develop the profession itself. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, again, it's just another job you have to do. How did you get into accounting? <laughs> this sounds horrible. Oh, man. <laughs> I wanted a stable job. Like, okay. I wanted a dependable job. And, uh, I mean, when I was a, a little kid, I was going to be a jet fighter pilot, and uh, that didn't work out. So, I mean, I watched Top Gun way too many times. Um, but when I was going to university, I was I, I was pretty good at the, the introductory level accounting class, um, and I was doing well at those. Uh, 
And when I looked at the profession itself, it was a, a very stable income during times of booms in the economy. You need accountants during times of recessions. Well, you need accountants even more. So it just, it made a world of sense to me. And then there was, there was broad mass appeal. You could work in any field that you wanted if you wanted to be in, I don't know, like a a craft beer brewery. Well, they still have an accountant. Mm. If you wanted to work at a national sports organization, well, they have accountants. Like it's just, it's one of those jobs where everybody has it. Um, and so it became this, well, this fits with broad opportunities and broad possibilities in life and it's super stable. And so it really just, to me, it became appealing because it was this chance where I could take my career in any direction I wanted. Um, once I grew up and figured out what I wanted to do with it kind of thing. Um, and I'd always have opportunities to, to, to deviate and change that. It wasn't that I was locked into just doing one thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was really appealing. And then finally, when you looked at uh, the Fortune 500, I mean, there's more CEOs who are accountants than, than anything else. Like the, this profession that's really highly regarded because it teaches really, really top-class business skills and top-class skills which you can apply to any aspect of your life. So what's a regular day at the office look like for you? As the internal auditor with Nate, it, it really just depends on the, the cycle that we're going through at that time. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate in the sense that working with my audit committee, I'm able to pick some really interesting engagements that I, that I get to do throughout the day, but uh, throughout the year, pardon me. Um, but my typical day really starts with, uh, with, the, with refreshing my work for that's ongoing at that time. Um, I like to use a lot of checklists to just kind of manage individual tasks itself, but it's, it's combinations of meeting with individuals, carrying out detailed testing or analysis, um, using data analytics tools like ACL to actually look at broad populations and understand trends and, and, and to really try and adjust. And then a lot of it is just actually um, maintaining relationships with individuals throughout the organization to understand kind of the risk profile and how things are moving and shifting. Uh, especially when we talk about a, a large organization like that, there's just it's, it's this organic kind of thing where as different departments start new initiatives, there's corresponding impacts in other departments or corresponding impacts in other areas of operations that they carry out. And so it's trying to stay apprised and aware of everything that's coming down the pipe. How do you reconcile the fact that in your cycling life, you know, you're traveling the world? Do you ever have moments where you think, man, a week ago I was, I was in Hawaii. A week ago I was doing this. You yeah, know? it was uh, just this January. I came back from Hawaii. It was plus 30 and it was minus, <laughs> minus 30 here, a 60 yeah. degree swing. And I thought to myself, why? Why would I come <laughs> back to this? Um, but part of it is with the, the cycling itself. Like we travel to all these countries, but it's, it's, it's a business trip. You're there to race. You're there to, to perform. And so it's not necessarily the most thrilling or exciting. A lot of the time is spent like sitting at the hotel with your feet up because you need to veg and you need to like recover and be as fresh as you can for one day of trying as hard as you can and sometimes making yourself throw up from effort. Um, So it's like for me, I like to be very busy. I like to be involved in things. And so that week of leading up to these races where you sit there and you do nothing and you just kind of relax, it's boring. And so I go into all these places. Uh, I mean, I remember us in Portugal and we were, we were staying 30 minutes from Porto, which is this gorgeous kind of city with all this amazing architecture. And I'd love to go and see it and visit and everything. And we're told, yeah, we'll save three, three or four hours on the last day and we'll stop by kind of thing. But you're like, I could be exploring it all week if yeah. I could, right? So, so it's not really a question of reconciling it. Again, it's just, it's, it's part of the job of it all. Um, 
but like those those brief moments of actual racing and the ecstasy of of actually pushing yourself as hard as you can or looking down at your speedo and seeing that you're doing 80 kilometers an hour under human power it's just that's the thrilling part that's the fun part and so it's you recognize that there's a lot of trade-off for very brief minutes or, or even moments of of sheer joy. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about how your experience in articling helped you with, I guess, you know, racing, racing through the pain. You've got a goal, you got to get to it. Um, how are some other ways that you apply your training as a CBA outside of your day job? <laughs> so with my racing, actually, I use the... Uh, data analysis tools that I learned at becoming a CPA really? to actually manage that. So with track racing, you um, it's a fixed gear, and so you decide exactly how many teeth on your front cog and how many teeth on your rear cog, uh, and and that configuration will change the gear inch length and how hard it is to to go. But it basically to go faster, you need to pedal faster with a bigger gear. So what I did was I designed a bunch of experiments where I used different combinations of gears. So like a 48 tooth in the front with 13 tooth in the back, uh, 52 in the front with 14 in the back. And when you do the math, they work out to what's called the same gear inch length. And you can actually then look at on every half second, my, my power meter on my bike will register how much power I'm producing. My speedometer captures the speed I'm going, and it also captures my, my leg speed as well. And so you can analyze all of these like six second bursts from the start of the gate itself as well as the entire three minute duration of the effort and you can see by using different gearing combinations i'm faster for this six seconds or i'm faster for this final one minute of the effort and i was able to use that to actually narrow down the the, the, narrow down the gear itself and i picked a very um unconventional gear which i use for my pursuit as a result of that because my physical performance is maximized through that. And so using the analysis where I looked at the data and the actual numbers and compared it across all these gears and used pivot tables to to decide <laughs> which gear was fastest for a start, which gear was fastest for the top speed, etc. I was able to say, well, this gear was not the fastest for the start, but it was faster in the second half of the pursuit and it was fastest at the finish. And so it's the fastest overall. Mm-hmm. And so that's the gear to use kind of thing. That's so cool. Um, so you go to a world championship, you meet a fellow athlete from another country. How do they react when you say, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional accountant? I, mean, I think that's one of the, the really interesting things when you look across the world itself and, and especially para-athletics or para-athletes themselves. If you're in a different country, a lot of these individuals don't have the similar opportunities that we have. Um, certainly individuals from a lot of the African nations, if you have a disability, like the, the possibility of even getting higher education is very low. Uh, and there's just a lot of barriers placed. So for a lot of these individuals, like that is their career. Like this isn't their hobby or their kind of fun thing that they do on the side. And um, so to them, like if I say I have a full-time job, they're kind of, they're like, why? Like um, if I look at uh, Team China, for example, if, if you're a selected athlete on the paracycling team for China, you live year-round at the velodrome. Uh, included within that is all your your food and your accommodations, um, and you're paid a, a stipend. And so, like that's it. Yeah, it's your career. Even Great Britain, they're paid an. The, the way it works with their system, from what I understand, is that if an athlete is selected, they're expected to quit whatever job they're working, and then the Great British funding sports funding agency matches their salary, and they're supposed to train and work full time at being the best athlete they can. And so to them, when I say, well, no, this is my hobby and I do it on the side and I train around my work and all this, it's, it's, it's abnormal, right? It's, this kind of blows them away. It's a weird reaction to see from a lot of them, I have to admit. Mm-hmm. So what's harder, 
training for a world championship race or achieving your CPA designation? Um, well, I think with the CPA designation, like anybody, anybody who really has enough drive and enough wherewithal will find a way to achieve it. It's like there's a lot of resources out there and there's a lot of really good people who are CPAs who want to see other people succeed. I mean, it's a, it is a community which helps people. We recognize that it is challenging and it's hard. I think that anybody who really, really wants to be a CPA, there's paths to it. It might take a different amount of time, but I think anybody could get there. Um, training to be a paracyclist, uh, again, I think it's just, if you actually want to do it, then it's, it's not hard. It's, it's fun. Um, if you don't want to do it, then it's horrible, right? Yeah. So, but I think that part of the, the nice thing with both of the disciplines is you choose to go into them and you choose to pursue these things because down the road you see a payoff or you see a reward that you want to, that you want to get. And so that's, that's the motivating factor and that's what makes it fun. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? Next, um, so in two weeks I head off to, to Belgium for a World Cup and I, I race there and so that'll be uh, the start of the, the official qualification for Tokyo 2020. And so based on my results this year and next year, I'll either make the team or I won't. But uh, that hopefully, uh, hopefully as of three weeks from now, I'll, be, I'll know that I'm a lo- little bit closer. Um, and then locally here with, with Nate, we're, we're moving ahead with a lot, of, a lot of different aspects of our operations. We have actually a couple of uh, CPA articling students who are going through our program right now. And so I mentor them. And so it's kind of fun to, 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 to look back at the process and to see how, to see them learning all the, all the new skills and all the new ideas and, and go through it themselves and to struggle kind of with some of the things that I struggled with itself. And so it's fun to give back in that regard. Um, and it's fun to see Nate continuing to evolve and be part of its growth. I mean, we, we've just opened our new Productivity Innovation Center. And so it's really changing the dynamic about how we deliver services to industry and what sort of, uh, what, what our business model or what our operating model really looks like as an institution and just what we're able to achieve and how we're able to partner and uh, advance it. Okay, so that seems like a good place to wrap things up. Um, so Straight from the CPA's Mouth is centered around Alberta CPAs asking and answering questions about anything and everything. Before we wrap up, um, Ross, can you pose a question for our next guest? What question would you like the next round of CPAs to answer? For sure, yeah. I'd like them to, to consider how often do you ask yourself if there's a better way of doing things? Okay, great question. Um, before I make my closing remarks, Ross, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add? Uh, no, I mean, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's fun to be part of this and... Um, it's, it's fun to be part of helping to build the profession itself and to hopefully inspire some other people to be involved in it. There you go. There you have it, listeners, straight from the CPA's mouth. Thank you, Ross, so much for taking the time and for, um, for joining us today. Uh, thank you to all of you for tuning in and be sure to check out our next episode featuring Alberta CPAs discussing the importance of doing things differently. Uh, if you're interested in hearing more answers straight from the CPA's mouth, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Straight from the CPA's Mouth is brought to you by the CPA Education Foundation. The CPA Education Foundation is the charitable arm of the Alberta CPA profession, providing up to $1.2 million each year in support of business and accounting education in the province. This podcast is just one of many resource materials available through the HESHI CPA Knowledge Centre. This virtual hub features Alberta CPAs sharing their unique perspective and vast expertise on topics and issues such as leadership, finance, entrepreneurship, and more. Visit cpaalberta.ca slash foundation for more information on the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center and to learn how Alberta CPAs inspire success.